Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Welcome back to the IRR show and it's time for our special guest, and he's a repeat guest, a colleague of mine, intrepid journalist and finder out of facts. And we are going to look at a very specific project, if I can call it that, that he's been involved in recently. And to this end, I'd like to welcome Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel. Hi, Sarah. Thank Krauser. you so much for having me. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, Gabriel, I'll, I'll, I'll let you sort of sketch all the facts because they are long, complicated and fairly disturbing. But just to set the scene, what, what we were dealing with was the uh, alleged murder of two farm workers by five people, four of whom are, are white farmers in the area and the, and the, and the uh, murder happened, um, on or at the, on or at the farm, uh, that 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 they that they owned, and what have, what escalated very very quickly from there essentially was the AF, ANC and the EFF coming out in support of the the murdered the the dead brothers, and the the rhetoric was inflammatory. It was anti-white. It was presumptive. And it was the, generally the racist stuff that the ANC tend to come out with, whether it be um, the ENCA event or at, uh, at Senegal, etc. And into this breach stepped, uh, stepped Gabriel because we were getting exactly the information that suggested that whatever was being alleged and made public and was the basis of the racism was not in fact how things happened, and the and the mainstream media was not covering it. Gabriel, have I about got the gist of it? Yeah, you have. I mean, let me just say the the first fact, uh, as as it was presented in the media, mainstream, and by the politicians uh, that you've alluded to, the Premier of Mpumalanga and the Mayor of Pitruti from Kondo, there in Mpumalanga on the borderland of Swaziland, uh, which which. Uh, which was contradicted and which sort of stimulated me to think I better get into town and, and into the uh, farmlands and, and talk to people was that the dead brothers were innocent, unarmed work seekers, that they didn't have jobs anymore, that they lived on this farm, but they were looking for work. Uh, it's harvest time and uh, people from outside have been employed this time around rather than them. And so they came to ask if they could have a job. And uh, that painted them in a very sympathetic light and very much supported this race narrative of rich white farmers, poor black people uh, meeting on opposite ends of the road and it ending in death, uh, the cold-blooded murder of two innocent work seekers. And the first fact uh, of the matter is that one of the brothers was not a work seeker. He was a worker. And the other brother was unemployed. And, and just that sort of uh that little i think that's the little pebble in mm. in in my shoe as it were that made it hard to 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 walk along with the mainstream narrative and yeah so we went to petrotif and we and we did our investigation and and i suppose the 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 hard point uh 
which 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 makes it seem like the mainstream narrative is 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 disturbed even if you make the minor alteration is is the video footage showing what happened before the shooting and if i can just build up a little bit of context here mm. so we're, because we're, that, that wasn't that wasn't available immediately that was not available immediately and so it's no one's fault that they didn't um that they didn't report on it. In fact, it, it was the first thing that I was told about, just about, when I arrived in Petrotif, that there is the security camera footage which shows some of the build-up uh, and that you must check it out. Um, but it was very, even though I knew about it, it was then very difficult to to see any of it. Um, and officially, it's only been shown in camera in court to the chief investigating officer and the defense team and the prosecution team. So, you know... Uh, Almost no one in the, in the, in, no journalist has had a chance to see it. But one of the things that, it, so just to give a context of the buildup is that, um, you have four people arriving on Pampun Kral farm, uh, armed with, uh, large sort of meter long sticks, uh, let's say knobkiris. And they, uh, see the farm workers there. And on the farm workers version, they harass the farm workers. And one of their complaints is that uh, cattle have been poisoned, and they're very upset by this. And this happened a while ago, but they 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 want the money to get paid back, and they want uh, to be employed, and they don't want these outsiders to be employed. And so they say, workers obviously can't uh, attend to this issue seriously. So they say, yes, but you must call the owner, Mr. Porthiter. So Porthiter comes along and then is struck with a knob carry to the head. Um, and so the uh, the person who did this allegedly, Mr. Slatswayo, is then placed under citizen's arrest, and a phone call is immediately made to the police. This is about eleven o'clock on a Saturday morning in early April, and they say, you know, the police station is about five ten minutes away. Please come pick this guy up. We want to lay a charge against him. You have to arrest him. He's just assaulted our boss. Uh, the police don't come, and there's a sort of a bit of a retreat and then a, a bit of a return and this is where uh, Amos Koka, Amos Mkini Koka who's one of the brothers comes along, takes off his shirt sort of marches through the farm gate and and insists on you know, basically wanting to get in there and, and, and have his complaints heard uh, have Shazaswai released and so on and on the other side to stop him is Senzele Koka, his own brother, the loyal farm worker, saying, "This is this is my place of work. This is these are my people. You hurt, you know, you you. This is not good. You have to go away." And they tussle with each other, a bit of a scrum, uh, a bit of a physical altercation, mainly verbal. And uh, eventually, Senzele Koka, the farm worker, the loyal farm worker, manages to to drive his brother off. And that's the, you think about that and it, and it, and it suddenly becomes very difficult to imagine that only an hour later the farmers are shooting Senzele Koka, who's just displayed conspicuously his loyalty to the farm. Mm. Um, so, so we still have these, these contesting versions, one where then what happens sort of on everyone's version is that uh, in the absence of the police coming, uh, the farmers get on their walkie-talkies and their WhatsApps and whatnot, and 
uh, call in support. Uh, and, and so uh, lots of people from the sort of neighborhood watch group uh, come through and more. Some have already arrived, including Senzela, but more come through. And on the other side, um, more people come through with Amos Koka to go and liberate Shatswayo, uh, who's on their version sort of just being kidnapped, beaten up and kidnapped and tied under a tree. And then they're outside the gate trying to – then these two groups meet across the road outside the gate uh, just beyond which Shatswayo is tied up. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the fight is about – uh, whether or not to release Shatswayo. And uh, in the course of this, uh, what starts out as a verbal agreement becomes physical. Uh, Amos and Klinikoka allegedly takes a steel pipe and strikes another farmer, Hans Mulman, a blow to the head. And he's been in ICU for, for weeks. Um, and uh, Mulman was armed. And so when he struck down uh, his... Uh, Amos is able to grab the gun and then start shooting quite wildly. And the, and the first person that he shoots, the only person that he shoots, is his own brother, Senzele, who he had just had this confrontation with an hour before. And uh, he shoots his brother dead. Now, whether this was deliberate or accidental has been impossible for me to, to try and figure out mm. uh, w- with any confidence. But... Um, He's still shooting and he gets shot back uh, by Otart Klingerman, one of the farmers who's there, and dies of that wound. And and that shooting is in self-defense. So so that's the that's the version that um, didn't catch much limelight. Uh, the first version, obviously, uh, they're there to liberate Laswayo, and the farmers are like, no, you can't do this. And and then the farmers sort of see that. Uh, the only way to deal with the problem, I guess, in their in their way of thinking about things, is just to shoot these uh, innocent, unarmed uh, work seekers, or one worker and one work seeker, uh, which is confusing. And there's no way to just, just to wrap this up. Yeah. There's there's no way on the on the state witnesses version, which is to say those uh, four farmers and one farm worker who were arrested and accused of the double murder. Um, in on a, on various national platforms, national platforms, the actual witnesses on the scene who said this is what happened had no way of explaining um, how the farmers were injured. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's conspicuous injuries to Mr. Potkiter, to Hans Mormon, and also to the first accused, Daniel Malan, who in the in the bail hearings, uh, one could see the sort of scar stitches above his eye where he'd mm-hmm. been struck. Uh, slowly change color from blue to p- purple to blue and heal up a little bit in the course mm. of that week. So there are these three uh, serious injuries which on the original state witnesses version couldn't be explained. But more to the point, there, there's no real good explanation of how it is that the loyal Senzele was then shot by his employer or one of his allies. Mm. Um, from this point on, we we basically see a complete uh, abrogation of the duty of the police to do their job properly and come very close to um, seeing the possibility that the, that what happens in court might follow the same pattern. What was, it, what was particularly egregious about how the police handled this matter? So the, the most egregious mistake was that the police didn't go to the scene when they were called at 11 o'clock in the morning. They were called before 11, and uh, 
at that stage, all that had happened is someone was hit in the head with a knobkiri and someone else was sort of cable tied to a tree. Um, and an, over an hour later, two people were dead and another person was hospitalized, uh, who, who might not make it. So, uh, and, and the chief investigating officer had to concede in court that if the police had just responded to that call in the first place and just gone there in five or ten minutes, um, then both Kolka brothers would be alive, Hans Mulman wouldn't be hospitalized, um, and that would be much better. When they do arrive, there are allegations from witnesses, eyewitnesses on the scene, that the police then don't go about collecting evidence in the most robust and transparent way. For example, the police are told these two versions, um, and uh, you know, starting with Otar Klingerman uh, uh, saying, "Look, I I did it. I I shot Amos." Um, and then trying to explain a little bit why he did that, that I did this in self-defense. Uh, he was shooting. So what the police then needed to do was swab Amos's hand, the deceased's hand, for gunpowder residue. Obviously, if they found gunpowder residue on the deceased's hand, that would corroborate that version provided by Klingerman and uh, the other farmers and farm workers. But they said that they didn't have enough bags to do so. So they swabbed all of the hands of uh, the farmers that were accused by the other side, uh, one of whom hadn't even been there at the scene, had arrived with the police. So uh, it was hard to understand why he was being swabbed, um, especially with a shortage of of bags to then deposit the little Q-tips that have taken those mm. ones. Um, so that, that that was one example. Another example was uh, bef- uh, it's very important to see where the cartridges that have been identified mm. lie because using that hard evidence, one can then reconstruct the scene and see what version is compatible with that and what version is incompatible with that. Um, that's that's the point of police work in a sense mm-hmm. you know, from the after the fact investigative side uh, having dealt with the before the fact preventative side and so they put down little cones where they identify the cartridges um, but before the police photographer was arrived those cones were then removed and all stacked up and then the police photographer arrives allegedly and says where are they and um, one of the police says, oh, whoops, and sort of just goes and puts some cones back on the ground, but then it's not clear that the cones have been put back on the ground in the right spot. Now, something to bear in mind is you're seeing this happening, and uh, then the police are asking you to surrender your firearms and to make your statement immediately before you've had a chance to talk to a lawyer, and you might start wondering whether the police are really um, here to do justice or whether they've heard the mob's call as my colleague Rian Malan once put it, for white flesh, mm. and are now going to do whatever needs to be done in order to make that happen. And you might feel a little bit suspicious yourself. And uh, and it is common cause that uh, uh, that the, some of the accused then uh, preferred not to uh, hand over their firearms immediately. And uh, they were all arrested, but um, you know, so some of the firearms were only detained uh, days later, and and that also has this uh, uh, detrimental effect on the credibility of any evidence. The state does raise the possibility that barrels might have been changed to confuse the ballistics, or you know, and and, mm. and that is a real concern. Um, so so I think the 
the, the, the point is that the police in the immediate part of the investigation uh, didn't seem to gather evidence properly. And then in the days that followed, I mean, there's Mulman sitting in hospital, not sitting, uh, unconscious, comatose, hospital, yeah. comatose with a skull fracture and bleeding on the brain. And there are multiple eyewitnesses saying, you know, we saw this man be assaulted. Uh, we'd like you to make an arrest. And that arrest is still not made. There is there is no charge or arrest being made for the assault on uh, on Mulman. Of course, the allegation is that that uh, Amos uh, did that. Amos and Pliny, the deceased, so he can't be charged. But there's also no charge for the assault on Mr. Potchiter, mm. uh, which was done with Nobkiri an hour or more earlier, allegedly by Mr. Tlaswayo. And, uh, and he hasn't been arrested or charged, although there's multiple eyewitnesses uh, willing to attest to his guilt for assault. So mm. there, in that sense, also seems to be a one-sidedness um, to the investigation, mm. uh, which is frustrating. And then so there's the pro, the proactive, the police didn't get there on time. There's the reactive, they don't gather evidence properly. Then there's the further, they don't pursue arrests um, against uh, people who are accused of attacking farmers. Uh, and then finally, there's the police's handling of the protests outside the court, um, which uh, yeah. can I, can I ask to be desired. Yes, I'd like to ask you about that after the break, but perhaps in the three minutes before the break, uh, just to before we, because I want to deal with that, uh, is the well, uh, the unbelievable incident of uh, a witness being coached while on the stand, apparently. <laughs> that was, Sarah, I didn't know that it was against the law because it was so brazen. But there <laughs> I was sitting in the in the media gallery watching a man in a black leather jacket write things down on a piece of paper and then put that on a big uh, uh, board and then hold it up so that the witness, the witness being the chief investigating officer could see what he was saying and the way he drew attention to himself was by clicking his pen against the forehead to make a little bit of a noise so that the guy would look and then he'd point to the board and say, you know, look at this look at this now the thing is that he was seated right behind the state's prosecutor's podium so he's next to the state's counsel the state's lawyer is giving him notes and telling him things and they're passing information back and forth but he's seated where he is behind the podium the magistrate can't see him that's the only person in the room who really can't see him because he's obstructed by this big wooden block. Uh, the witness can see him best. Everyone in the gallery can see him. But the defense also can't really see him because their gaze is directed ahead, which is to the magistrate, and to mm. the right, which is where the witness is seated. Whereas this guy is sort of sitting uh, next to them and slightly behind them to the left. So I watched this going on for an hour, and I thought, wow, I didn't know that in South Africa you could um, – write things down to tell the witness what to say, but I guess that must be allowed uh, because no one's objecting to it. Um, and then finally one of the state's counsel who was seated uh, quite close saw what was happening and then raised an objection to the magistrate. And, there, and the person immediately sort of covered the board with other papers and said, no, 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 these are just notes. <laughs> and then they said, no, we were actually doing it, but it was – it's fine because this person is supposed to be in the witness box as well. And and then they started speaking in Latin furiously, both the state's council and the defense, and I couldn't really understand. Then, then, then you know, things have, have reached a pretty pass. <laughs> um, 
Gabriel, let's go to the ad break, and I'd like to keep you on uh, on a range of issues after that. Hi FM, one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Welcome back, and our chat to uh, Gabriel Krauser about this extraordinary set of circumstances in Kondo uh, Pitratif. Um, I want to ask Gabriel. You were going to talk about the police handling of protesters, and just to say that if there's one thing the EFF and the ANC can do efficiently, it's get their protesting shock troops to any area in the country where they can possibly feed off an, a, allegations of of, uh, of race of white racism against blacks, and uh, we've seen it a number of times in the past few years. Um, so, Gabriel, the shock troops are now in place um, and presumably not behaving terribly well. What happens from there? Yeah, so. Uh it's uh, it's Monday two weeks ago and uh, no need for coffee in the morning uh, arriving at court because before the court proceedings have begun, the shock troops have uh, enjoined and have started to throw rocks at the police and at the journalists who are on the other end of the barbed wire, which has been strung around the court. Um, I was very chuffed because I managed to take a photo of a rock in flight and call heads so that the police could dodge being hit by it. Um, anyway, no one was hurt. Uh, so that's very good. And the police did a did a good job in that in the morning. Um, they kind of uh, drove back the the rock throwers uh, without um, hurting anyone. They they just sort of kept their discipline through stun grenade. That kind of shocks people, and they run a little bit, and then they march forward, make a line. Uh, don't use the rubber bullets, uh, but but show that they're capable of doing so. Then rearrange the barbed wire, come back. Okay, it's it's exciting. The speeches are. Are, are thrilling. There's uh, lots of chance of kill the farmer, uh, Dubulai Bunu, um, Panzi Amabunu Panzi, of course, uh, down with the farmer, uh, placards. My favorite one saying, uh, you must get rid of the 1652 killers, uh, that, that wonderful euphemism for white, uh, as 1652. Anyway, so <laughs> then we go into the court and, um, and you can hear the chants outside. It doesn't seem too disturbing. But after a while, the, the magistrate sends an instruction that first he says to the leaders, the community leaders, EFF and ANC leaders inside, you know, can't you go outside and just ask these people to pipe down a little bit because it's quite noisy and we're worried that the recording equipment in court will pick up on that sound and then not legibly uh, preserve the words being said inside mm -hmm. the court. Um but the leaders don't really do that. So then he sends a, a court order uh, that the noise must be controlled by the police. And 10 minutes after that, the speakers get plugged in and are mm. amplified. And so it just gets much, much noisier. And you hear the speeches and the songs and the DJs playing. And that was just insane in a way. I mean, it's just such a just another little example of this kind of brazen uh, lawlessness. Mm. Um and uh, and that proceeded, and you hear a more flash, few more flashbangs from inside, and the scuffles are going back and forth. Um, but then the most dangerous part of that day actually came after the court proceedings concluded, because of course the major uh, concern being expressed both by residents of Petrotif and by, and by the way, no one calls it Umkondo who's there, including traditional Zulu leaders. <laughs> they say we don't know who Umkondo is, we know who Petrotif is, so we're going to call it Petrotif. Anyway, so. After uh, the the major concern was that if they were released on bail, the the the, the crowd would really turn into a mob, um, and uh, and destroy things 
in revenge, I suppose, for releasing the accused on bail. Um, but on Monday at 2 o'clock or whatever it is, it turns out that's not going to be the case. Bail has been postponed. So the crowd somewhat dissipates and then the police somewhat dissipate. And the crowd, a lot of the crowd then retreats four blocks down the main road going through Petrotif, uh to a total garage. And uh, that's where I was sent ultimately by Captain Kwebu, uh, who I believe is the same Captain Kwebu who received the initial call on that fateful Saturday uh, and uh, then did not ensure that the police went to where they needed to go. Uh, anyway, I went looking for the police liaison for about an hour to ask about the noise complaint issue. Why did the police not follow the court's order to turn off the speakers at the very least? Um, and uh, hard to find the media liaison. And Captain Kwebu said, well, you can just go find him at the total garage. Uh, there's been an incident there, but he's investigating it. And I said, is it safe? He says, yeah, now there's lots of police there. And they're just recording evidence and taking witness statements. I'm sure you'll have a minute on the side just to tell you what's going on. And I went there and, uh, yeah, saw that there were no police there, that there were lots of angry people dressed in EFF shirts and ANC shirts, uh, that some of them seemed to be visibly reeling from alcohol. I'd also just seen multiple beer bottles being thrown at me and other police when I was behind the police blockade. Uh, and so... I thought maybe I should park and then a guy sort of stopped and stopped in front of the car to stop me from going forward and shouted, umlungu, umlungu, uh, go away. He didn't use exactly the word go away. Um, <laughs> and so I thought maybe I shouldn't park. Uh, maybe I'll just try and uh, drive around him and turn around. And then he chased me and kicked the tire. Uh, and then another guy came from the front and tried to, and threw a brick, uh, through the windscreen. Um, and another brick on the roof. And uh, then I speedily exited the total garage, uh, being careful not to strike anyone. I was quite lucky uh, that there weren't, there wasn't much of a crowd in front of me. Most of the crowd were behind me, so I didn't get stuck in that awful position where you have to think about, um, you know, maybe driving into someone mm. in order to protect yourself. I mean, that's just a ghastly thing that I've seen uh, people. Uh, do in in America during some mm, protests mm, recently. Mm. There have been some court cases around that. Anyway, so I didn't have that at all. I was I was very lucky. Um, uh, drove away, and then the guy who threw the the, the brick through the windshield was shouting, "Umlungu uh, zongbulala, Whitey, I'm going to kill you." Um, anyway, so I got away and then went back to Captain Kwebu, uh by the court. He wasn't very impressed by what had happened. He was very philosophical. Um, he didn't use the phrase. You know, in French, there's this phrase. To break a glass or a ceramic that these things were made to break after all. He didn't quite say that in French, but he was very. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I couldn't get him to go to the scene to, to, you know, or any of the police to, to, you know, I was trying to say, look, this is clearly the mob has moved down there and anyone who's going there is going to be in danger. They didn't do much. So I found the media liaison finally, did my little interview and then went to the police station where I found another two cars that had been smashed, uh, both worse than mine. Um, and then a third car arrived half an hour later while we were in the queue uh, to get our police affidavits filed. Um, a queue which magically there were no police when we got to the front of the queue. Uh, but never mind that. Uh, th this woman arrived and she was uh, she was visibly shaking and, and teary and uh, um, sort of just saying that you know if she hadn't managed to get away. Uh, with these extra hard uh, sort of windows that her husband had had installed, then she thinks she'd be dead. Uh, and the hate, the hate, she kept saying, I can't understand the hate. 
And uh, and when I saw her, I realized that I actually was feeling things as well mm. uh, underneath my sort of, uh, I don't know, professional visage of the reporter who's just there to listen. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then another bit of police uh, just just something very irritating is then she said, you know, I've got another four hours to drive. I really want to go and get my windshield replaced before yeah. I go. Um, but I'm afraid to drive to the shop, you know, the, yeah. whatever. Uh, please, can you escort me there? And then the police said, no, no, no. It's just uh, you go there, left, oh, right, goodness. across the road, then to the left, then to the right. So, uh, so, so, sorry to, to interrupt, yeah. uh, interrupt you there. Um, let's go to an ad break. I'm actually going to do the, the, the unusual and take you right through to the end. Um, um, and I'll try and sum up where we've come on this particular point. Uh, let's go to our ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. In the last five minutes, um, which doesn't begin to do service uh, to the rest of the of, of the story, but I, Gabriel, I'd just like to ask you two things. The first is that bail was ultimately granted to the five men. Um, so the question there is, was a, a travesty of justice avoided? And should any of this behaviour be... Is it worth reporting it to organisations like IPID, which investigate the police, or South African Human Rights Council, um, or Commission, which deals, which on the issues of, of the behaviour of the ANC and the EFF? Yeah. So, yeah, my take is that, uh, a travesty of, no, it, it was perfectly correct. Magister van Cormo, uh, followed the letter of the law in granting bail. Um, but the big thing is going to be the murder trial to come. And what uh, the listeners should be aware of is that there are allegate that two people died on or near this near the same farm uh, in August last year, mm. and uh, the allegation is now that it was at the behest of the same racist white farmers. Mm. Uh, the 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 facts don't support that version, uh, such as they are legible at this moment. Um, in fact, but I won't get into that because we mm. don't have time. Uh, but I think that what's going to happen is that in the murder trial, I think this case will be lumped in with mm. other cases and, uh, it, that might create enough, you know, this place has been described as a slaughterhouse, the farm, mm. uh, by, by ANC and EFF MPs. Um, so uh, that line will be pursued and we'll have to see whether the, uh, the High Court Justice, uh, is going to adjudicate on the facts in front of him or her or not. And, uh, yeah, I did cover the Kalini story for years. Mm. Um, and what I found was that the magistrate was actually much better than the High Court Justice. The mm. High Court Justice did not confront the facts in front of him, made a guilty ruling, which was over, only overturned at the Supreme Court of Appeal after the accused had spent uh, over a year in jail, uh, despite being innocent men. So, no, I don't think the story's over. Um, mm. We'll have to see where it goes. In terms of IPID, absolutely, um, they should be involved. I think that, uh, and, and the HRC, but I think you, you, there needs to be deeper changes than even those institutions could possibly mm. bring about. Uh, you know, if you think about the, the version according to which this starts out with poisoning some cattle, uh, that is something that I have come across on multiple occasions, um, in rural South Africa where there are laws, there are bylaws about how much how many cattle you're allowed to have on a piece of land, and then owners try to enforce those laws, sometimes by impounding the cattle. 
which is the traditional legal route to go. But there's one case that went all the way up to the constitutional court, cost the owners millions and millions of rands, and uh, still uh, left them with a target on their back. And uh, that's because of police failure to, mm. to, to uphold the law themselves. And so that leaves people sort of taking the law into their own hand. I think it is possible that these farmers poison the cattle. I'm not sure, but it's possible. Mm. Um, and if you, if you, if you just spend five minutes in rural South Africa, you realize how far away you are from civilization and that when people start taking the law into their own hands, it can easily escalate in, 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 in the way that it seems to have done mm-hmm. here. And so to really address the issue, you have to have a broader cultural shift, uh, both within the police and within the broader community, that that law must be upheld, that property rights uh, must be protected and respected. Yeah. And, and short of that, you keep, I think, the, the grass stays dry mm. and uh, and a flint will come along okay. at some point in another and set it on fire. Right. Gabriel, um, I have to thank you very much. As I said, I don't think the time uh, did justice to the, the complexity of the issue, and I look forward to the book. Thank you. And to to you listening out there, uh, please join me next Tuesday. Um, I'm not sure we'll be able to match uh, Gabriel's exposition of police incompetence, political interference, racism, alleged racism. But we'll see. Um, I'm not sure what will be coming up next week. Once again, thank you, Gabriel. And, guys, see you all next Tuesday.